0: only thing I could think of, it was like going to the motherland. America the the nation is filled with immigrants, but there's a the mother country, ancestrally speaking. So whether you're going you know, come from Poland, Ireland, Africa, wherever, when you go back to those places, there's something grounding, there's something that anchors you. And it did for me, because I'm looking at this woman, I'm like, my life story begins with this woman. It all started in her
1: womb. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I?
0: Who am I? Who am I? Who am I?
1: Who am I? This is Who Am I Really?, a podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. Hey, I'm Damon Davis. On today's show, I'm joined by Michael, who grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn, New York. Michael was living a comfortable life in the Williams loving home when he accidentally discovered that he was adopted at 12 years old. The discovery that he actually had another identity created conflict in him during his teenage years. With spontaneity, tenacity, and a fair bit of luck, Michael was able to track down the phone number for a long lost cousin in New York. Over the course of two decades, he satisfied his curiosity to uncover every detail he could about who he really is. It was an emotional journey of discovery, all the way to his family's roots in the South. We pick up Michael's journey at the beginning as a child. Michael was raised with six siblings, some biological to each other, and many foster children who moved in and out of their home over the years. His parents cultivated a family environment for everyone, including him.
0: In my world, I, I always, you know, thought that I was born uh, in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, that, that was my starting point, and of course... Later on, I discovered that I had been adopted into the family, but I was—I started as before as the Williams uh, foster child, and my adoption wasn't made final until I was uh, six years old. Even at that point, there was never any differentiation between, oh, these are the biological children, or oh, these are the adopted children, or oh, these are the foster children, because I remember growing up in a household that was filled with foster kids coming in and out, not ever realizing that I had once than in their shoes.
1: Mm, Interesting.
0: So my parents did a really good job. It was an environment of of openness, Mm -hmm. and there was this sense of a family cohesion Mm -hmm. that even though with the foster kids that were coming in and out, it was just a part of everyday life for us. That whole family environment was cultivated by both my father and my mother, simply because dad was the only child Mm-hmm. His name, and you know, I say this to honor my father because he's deceased. Freedom and Black Williams. And he was the only child, and he never knew his father. Mm-hmm. And there was an, an incredible burden in his heart to be a father to the fatherless. What I later discovered was that he actually had fostered nearly sixty-five inner-city children.
1: Wow, that's that's an open heart, man. That's really incredible. So you were you were made to feel so comfortable that it took you a while to figure out that at one point you had been a foster child who was in transition to another place. That's interesting. Exactly. What, what did you think when you realized that?
0: When I well, the day that I realized that I had been adopted, I was about twelve or thirteen years old, and it turned everything on its head because it was confusion. It was confusing to me because I didn't understand why that information was withheld. Everything just kind of came out in an unexpected way. I mean I was I had I was looking through the family photo album and I discovered the summer day camp certificate of completion mm-hmm. and it said Michael Hart. and I'm like, Well they, they, somebody made a huge mistake and mom never caught this. How could she not have caught this? Very noticeable mistake. I'm not Michael Hart. Who is Michael Hart? I'm Michael Williams. I've always been Michael Williams. So then when I brought it upstairs to confront my mother about it, she said, where did you find that certificate?" I said, well, mom, it was in the family photo album. And I, and she knew I, I had this, this habit of looking through the photo albums and just trying to make sense of who all these folks were in these black and white photos. So then it turns out that was the day of discovery but it was also the day of discovery of my two younger siblings because all the way up until that time well I thought no I was born into the family and those foster kids that I remember they were the ones who were foster kids Mm -hmm. and then now I'm confronted with the reality that no I was once in their shoes and but I was the one that they one of the few that they ended up keeping so there was a whole other history that I was connected to
1: yeah. That
0: I just had to know about. And that was very, very traumatic and confusing mm-hmm. all at once.
1: How did your mom make you feel? How did she address your confusion?
0: I think that she was ill prepared for that day.
1: Mm hmm. That was I a surprise. I think the
0: intent was, yeah, i feel very, very taken aback by the fact that I even discovered the certificate. I think it was one of those things that because it was a closed adoption, you know that was one document that I guess she didn't file away good enough. You know, and right. somehow it just ended up just in there, and um, I wasn't supposed to find out because mm-hmm. she was completely unprepared. I think she did. I mean, in retrospect, I, I think that she did the best she could, and giving us some general information, like for example, she was able to tell me that my full name was Michael Raymond Hars. Mm-hmm. I eventually learned about the significance of my first and my middle name.
1: And what are they?
0: And, um, and my birth mother named me after my uncle.
1: Oh, that's nice. So I, so, so I had an Uncle Michael and I had an Uncle Raymond. So you retained mm-hmm. name ownership and connection uh, back to your biological family. That's kind of fascinating. Michael said that their home had established such a strong sense of family, the news that he was also an adoptee didn't change anything with his older siblings. That news bonded him more closely to his younger siblings, who were foster kids like himself. But as he got older, he began to question his identity much more than he had before. And that sparked the deep curiosity about how his personal story had begun. So you found the family photo album. And in it, it has a camp document that basically says a different name for a child that you don't think is you. Would Tell me Correct. about what happened next.
0: Well, what happened was I confronted my my mother, and I said, well, Mom, they, there must be some terrible mistake here because I don't know who Michael Hart is. Mm-hmm. She said, that's your real name. Mm. And that was the day that I discovered that I had been adopted.
1: And, and just what did you think when you when you, she said that was your real name? What, what did that mean for you?
0: I didn't believe her. I thought she was lying. For some reason, I thought. For some reason, I thought she was like playing this really horrible joke. I thought, "No, I'm on punishment." But really, mom, this is really not cool, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But she said no. She said, and she she um, called for uh, my two younger siblings to set all three of us down. She said, "Well, it's something I have to tell you all," and that's when she told each and every one of us that we had come through the foster care system and that we had been adopted into the family. And that's how we became Williams. So being the oldest of the, of, you know, the last, you know, set of kids, Mm -hmm. I had, you know, a myriad of questions and I was just firing them off, you know. And my mother was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I just don't know. Mm And that didn't sit well with me because I'm like, well, I, I I gotta get these answers. I got to know. I have to know. And it did bond me, uh, closer to my two younger siblings because now we're looking at each other saying, oh my God, but all of us, all three of us were foster kids and, and were adopted and now we're kind of, wondering and, and wishing together, you know, that maybe one day we could get some answers and, you know, reconnect out with our, our biological families at some point in our lives. For me, as I got older uh, and I moved into adolescent years of age, it became a challenge for me because now I started, you know, really grappling, trying to grapple with some some identity issues. So in the household... There wasn't this assurance that I was a part of this family continuum. I knew who my immediate family were, but who were my grandparents? Who were my great-grandparents? Where did they come
1: from? I see.
0: There really wasn't much of that. Finding out that I had been adopted was right before I went right into the adolescent phase of, of my life. You know, I really struggled with trying to... You know, really gained some sense about you know, my identity. Well, you know, ancestrally speaking, um, I always knew that you know my my immediate uh, family members they were my kinfolk. You mm-hmm. know, because of that love, and that bond. But there was really no sense of belonging to a family continuum beyond that. And I had to I had to search for that. I had to reconnect with that because what that meant to me and you know, I quickly began to understand that wait a minute, Michael Horst, that's a part of chapter one of my life. How did I how, what history preceded me that led me to be born as Michael Raymond Horace? I need to know that history. Because in my mind at that time, Michael Williams represented uh, and still represents for me as chapter two of my life, and I, I had to, and I and I knew that part well enough, you know, to, to to not have any insecurities there. Um, what really exacerbated the the feeling of maybe wanting to pursue the family, my biological family, was um, I guess after a couple of viewings of um, of Roots. And being a man of African, you know, American descent, you know, the only things that I had to go off of in terms of the history that I come from in America was enslavement. Mm -hmm. And the period of enslavement and and the process of, of, of trying to become free again. And that really didn't do much to ensure a very healthy self esteem. I see when I watched the the miniseries Roots," I began to feel sad that you know a, a great part of my community's history has been you know stolen mm-hmm. and reclassified, and we can never get that back again, and then knowing personally that you know I had been taken out of a situation and had become disconnected from a piece of my past that I could no longer or have no way of knowing how to reclaim. Uh, or to recover. That also kind of deepened that sense of rootlessness. So I, I took charge and I did something about it. So in
1: 1996, just days before his 18th birthday and the day before Thanksgiving, Michael launched his search. He had compiled information about his adoption for years from his mother that he would use to finally find his biological family. He had his biological last name, the name of the Catholic orphanage in Brooklyn that handled his adoption, the knowledge that he had a biological sister 13 years older than himself, and that he was from Brooklyn, New York. Using a $5 calling card with only 20 minutes on it, he began calling directory assistance in New York. When
0: I called directory assistance, quite naturally, I asked for random numbers uh, under my uh, biological surname, and I started with Brooklyn, naturally. And I went across to all the rest of the, um, the four other boroughs. And so that meant that I had to ask for numbers in Staten Island and Queens and Bronx and Manhattan, all of that. And, um, <laughs> I recall the, the last operator that I got was the first operator <laughs> who took my call when I first started out. And she said, wait a minute. I don't remember you. And she said, you can't keep calling in like this. She said, L-, and I said, ma'am, I said, listen, okay, I just got a honest with you. I'm searching for my biological family. And she was touched. She said, I will give you three more numbers, and that's a red flagging this, okay? I said, okay, I'm grateful. Whatever you can give. Wow. So it turned out that, you know, in the process of me calling back and, you know, going to different boroughs and asking for these random numbers, that uh, all of the operators were so gracious enough to give to me, I ended up with a total of about forty numbers.
1: With a calling card, you just kept calling them.
0: Yes, and, and actually, to set up the whole scene, I was scheduled to work that night, but I had some time off, der- uh, some time during the day to do a little bit running around. And after I completed all my errands, and that's when I called the operator uh, from directory Assistance in New York, and I um, accumulated those numbers, and I began to call. Each had one of those numbers, and I cannot, I had a tremendous amount of instincts during this entire process. I cannot begin to tell you how I knew, but it was like I knew that that wasn't it. they was like, nope, I'm sorry to bother you. Have a nice day. Call the next number, and the next, and the next. And so finally, the last number, there was something different about this last call. Hmm. I said my usual opening.
1: And what was that? Hello,
0: my, name? and I used, and my opening was, um, hello, my name is Michael Raymond Hart. You know, I'm looking for my biological family. Do you know of a child I was born on? I gave my full date, okay, at birth and all that. And she said, um, uh, what was her name again? I said, oh, my name is Michael Raymond Hart. And she says, no, it can't be. And now I'm thinking, like, what is she talking about? No, it can't be. Damon, I was, I was, th- at that whole point in time, I was starting to get nervous. I'm like, wait a minute. I just did this on a humbug and I i mean I kinda was hoping that I would make a connection but then this is feeling strange now. And this is I the very last
1: call, phone number?
0: The very last number that I called mm. on that list, Damon, I tell you, she said, I think I know of a child who was born with that name and on that month day and year weren't you the child that was placed in Angel Guardian Foster home in Brooklyn? I said, How did you know that? I said, nobody knows that unless I volunteer that information. She says, I'm your first cousin and we've been looking for you for 18 years. Oh, wow, dude. What and I was about feel? to turn 18 in five days. I <laughs> just passed out because I remember hearing her voice on the phone, but like the phone was, the receiver wasn't up to my ear. I just kind of just put it off to the side or something mm-hmm. and like, oh. My gosh, what the heck just happened? At that moment, the door downstairs swung open, and my mother yelled, out, My God, get downstairs and help with these guys, because she was doing last minute Thanksgiving shopping, you know? Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is stupid. You know, I had to go to work in like another 30, 30 minutes or so. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness, I said, this is this happening so fast. You know, I didn't really think that I was really going to find someone. in this is, you know, my first attempt. It just happened with like a huge whirlwind. And my cousin, she was very patient and she got so excited and she started crying and all of the stuff. It was a very emotional moment. But once she um and I both recomposed, them, I still wasn't convinced. Why? I, she was emotional. I was in shock. I wasn't convinced because I wanted her to confirm the age. It was something about her confirming the age differential between my sister. Because, see, when I was told that I had a sibling... They didn't tell me that it was a, uh, or if it was a sister or a brother. It was like I had a sibling who was 13 years older than me. That's all they knew.
1: But she said sister specifically.
0: Yeah, she said, is your sister still alive? I said, cuz, slow down. (laughs) Cuz she was really just just spewing out all hope it's amazing because of, out of sheer excitement. And I said, I said, okay, I said, okay, look, you said I had a sister. Let's go back to that. How old is she? Now remember, I was getting ready to turn 18. The minute she said, Oh, your sister's 31, I said, Oh my God. Mm, That was it. I said, That's exactly how old she would be. That's when
1: I got emotional. Like a blessing for the holidays, Michael has located his biological family. His cousin sounded the alarm out to the family, and the next person who he spoke with was his sister, Tanya. They talked for an hour on another calling card. In that conversation, he learned that the family had been looking for him for years since he had been removed from his mother's care. I can't help but wonder about your first conversation with your sister. You've your cousin has sounded the alarm. I found your brother. Yes. And now yeah. you're on the phone with your sister. What did you say? How did that go? Oh my God, that
0: conversation. It was it was sort of awkward
1: because
0: um i'm speaking blood is blood is speaking to blood but at the same time we're strangers to one another so i had to from my um point of view i felt that um i didn't want to be overly excitable on the phone i really kind of was cool, calm, collected. And I said, you know who you're speaking with? She said, yes, I know who you're speaking with, who I'm speaking to. And she says, you are my brother. Basically, I mean, we talked about her, she and, and my cousin, um, actually making an attempt to try to get more information about my whereabouts. My sister uh, recalled a, a time when they made a few uh, few attempts, actually, and each time they just hit a brick wall. With Michael, this day we have prayed for this day. We have prayed for this day. We really had limited information. We knew uh that you had placed angel guardian home, but you know, after you left us, after you were taken from us, we really had no knowledge of your whereabouts. Um and then when I told her that I had remained in New York for for a while since then uh, since the time about the uh, disconnect, she was like, What? She was like, They told you she went to Oklahoma. And I'm like, No, I was in New York. Right underneath their noses. I was right there.
1: You mentioned that she said that you had been taken from their home. Tell me about that.
0: Well, um, because it was a closed adoption, um, I became a ward of the state of New York. My birth mother. She had uh, a mental health disability. I see, and there was a law on the books that really did not favor uh, single mothers who had mental health challenges, and that really facilitated, you know, the process of me being placed in foster care as a ward of the state. And so I had passed through about six or seven different homes from the time I was born until the time I had been placed into the Williams home, which was around 11 months old.
1: And what's your understanding about where the family was and their desire to have taken you right from your mother instead of this interceding process of you going to be a ward of the state? What's your understanding of how the situation unfolded?
0: My understanding about how the situation unfolded really matured um, as I got older. I've had some experiences since then um, that really helped me to understand that whole process. I became a, a CASA volunteer, an acronym that stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate, a nationwide advocacy group, and, and um, I was able to advocate for children who have been who entered the foster care system. I thought it was a good idea to volunteer so that I could get an understanding what that process looked like and may have looked like to me. I now understand that it was an involuntary separation. I understand. And all this while, I thought that my mother deliberately surrendered me, but that was not the case. So it meant that many within the family did not even know I existed. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why you know, no one came forward. And when I began to learn about this part of the story, I began to wrestle with this, this feeling of, okay, resentment. No one came to defend me. Mm-hmm. Even though I was engrafted into a wonderful adopted family, why didn't nobody from my first family come forward and defend my right to stay and to remain under the protection of my family? All of that was a part of me unpacking those deep-seated feelings that I felt when I was, you know, a young
1: adolescent male. The cousin that Michael located revealed an interesting twist of fate that allowed them to connect. His sister had gotten married, so she took her husband's last name. And as a married woman, even the phone bill was in that name. So when Michael was accumulating phone numbers for the Hearth family members in New York, he didn't find her through directory assistance. But his cousin had taken a different track, intentionally. My
0: cousin, who I ended up, you know, getting in contact with, she was also married, but the phone was in her name. She decided that she would keep the name in the family surname and not her married name. Because she felt that one day I would come looking, and when that day came, she would be the one to receive that call and sound the alarm to the family.
1: Wow. What an amazing foresight on her part. Man, that must've warmed your heart to know that she had intentionally (laughs) retained her own identity as a hearth in order to let you easily find her when that time came. That's, that's really spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it made me, it was heartwarming because it made me feel that I wasn't forgotten. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, as abandoned as I thought I was. People tried and I was grateful for that that act of love, that act of
1: hope. So Michael's sister Tanya decided she had to meet him and she couldn't wait. She drove several hours from Long Island to the Poconos, where Michael was working at a resort, waiting tables, saving money for school. It was an excellent first connection for the siblings, but it was only a taste of the moving experience he would have meeting the rest of his biological family. Just the
0: way she actually surprised me on the job. I was in the process of getting everything ready for the evening, and I set my tables and everything. And then Terry, who was my uh, the floor manager at the time, she said, "Michael, there's a woman i She says she's your sister, Tanya. Do you know that name?" I said, "Yeah, I know who that is." And I went, and the double when the double doors opened up. There she was. And I said, honey, you came to see me. She says, I couldn't wait. She said, I could not wait. I couldn't wait. I I had to see you personally. Mm -hmm. So she drove up from Long Island Mm -hmm. and she stayed for that weekend. And um, I made sure that she had the best room and everything, you know. <laughs> gave and a then then she gave her could hookup. Yeah, I gave her the hookup, you know what I'm mean? saying? <laughs> Took a picture together. We had drinks the whole night. Yeah, it was really, truly an amazing bonding experience between a uh, sister and her, her younger brother. And then, of course, um, that was the precursor to the big family union. And once I made my way down to New York, See she <laughs> <laughs> everybody. That meant that, meant that I, I got the chance to meet my biological mother in person.
1: And how was that? So,
0: oh my gosh, it was like going to the motherland. America is the nation filled with immigrants, but there's a mother country, you know, mm-hmm. and speaking. Mm-hmm. So whether you're going to come from Poland, Ireland, Africa, wherever, When you go back to those places, there's something grounding, there's something that anchors you. Mm -hmm. And it did for me. Because I'm looking at this woman, I'm like, my life story begins with this woman. Started in her womb. Chapter one of my life. She has, you know, this piercing, these piercing set of eyes. And I could tell because of her her uh, her health issues, her mental health issues, we were kind of limited in the way that we were able to fully interact. Yeah. But her eyes talked. She had the kind of eyes that could see right through you, mm-hmm. but they were loving. Mm. I, I felt passion. I could see hope in her eyes. And she just looked at me. And it was just extended stare between the two of us. And then she said, you are my son. She says I know you're my son.
1: She knew it. And she could identify you. She
0: knew. She knew, yes. She was a woman of few words that night, but she knew she had to say that.
1: And how did I that make you son?
0: feel? I was like, wow. It, it felt validating. I felt validated because I knew that. And I, I was secure in the fact that my adopted mother, I was her son, you know, and, and looking at chapter two of my life, now, that is my mother. But I needed to know that I wasn't forgotten, that I wasn't a, a throwaway. I needed her to say to me, I know who you are. I recognize you. I, I just needed that. That mm-hmm. moment in time was just, fabulous and i will never forget we said grace over the food and we held hands you know we stood around the food and we prayed and it felt like a tremendous homecoming i was not expecting that
1: that's right at all and i forgot that you said it was four weeks after thanksgiving that you met them so this is a christmas dinner homecoming reunion wow
0: Yes, yes, but it wasn't that with any,
1: It wasn't without any opposition, of
0: course. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me about because that. Before I ventured down, I had a very heart-to-heart conversation with my adoptive mother, who absolutely forbade me to go. She was scared. She was overprotective. You know, she still didn't understand because even up until this point, by this point, my mother knew what had happened. It took
1: her a while to process. Yeah, so, so Hi, tell me – I apologize for cutting you off, but I realized that we didn't really You're go up. to the point where you are on the phone with your first cousin, and your mother yes. is barking at you to come help her with these Thanksgiving <laughs> groceries. And you – I assume yes. at some point you had to get off the phone and face your mom. Tell me a little bit about how <laughs> it unfolded when you finally got off the phone, and at what point you decided that it was the right time to tell your adopted mother – what had transpired?
0: Well, actually, after I helped my mother unload the, um, the car with groceries, I just slipped out. I said, Mom, do not believe what just happened? And she said, wait, I think I found my biological family. She said, oh, okay. Now put that jar, of Jelly, in the cupboard up there. Mm-mm. And she kept directing, you know, I'll where she needs the groceries. Like she heard it, but she really didn't hear it. Yes, It wasn't until later that night when I came home from work, I asked to use the phone, and I made the call, and I spoke to, you know, to uh, my cousin and trying and all that. After those calls had been made, then my mother called me into her room, and she says, I want to talk to you about something. That was the most awkward experience. The tension was very thick, because I began to feel that my mother resented me for having bothered to look without consulting or confiding in her, and I was put in an awkward position of, of having to explain, well, you know, I really didn't believe that I would find them, but I mean, it was just on a humbug, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know... You're ...soften the blow, you know, as much as possible, but, um, but then at the same time, I, I couldn't deny the fact that I was happy about the discovery. Even though I clearly could see that she was not thrilled at all, but I was not going to um, deny, deny myself. You know those kinds, of, and I, I didn't know how to console my mother any more than I thought I could. You know, mm-hmm. I said, "You know, nothing's going to change between the two of us, but I have to do this." And unfortunately, I went throughout that entire reunification process without the support of my biological family.
1: Did you get the impression yeah. that had you been, and I don't mean to make any judgment as to how, you, how yeah. this unfolded for you, did you get the impression sure. that had you included her in your desire to search more openly, that your discovery of your biological family might not have been as much of a blow, a surprise?
0: I do. I do. I really do believe that it wouldn't have been much of a surprise and it wouldn't have been met with such, um, resistance. But you know, something I, I was in a flow. I, I, I felt spontaneous. It, was, it happened so spontaneously. And you know what? I was afraid to even mention during my childhood that I even had thoughts of even finding my family. I didn't want to seem like, you know, I wasn't grateful. But ever since that day of discovery, I mean, that feeling of wanting to reach out and connect and to find my family of origin just kept growing and growing. And I just couldn't continue anymore. I couldn't contain that anymore.
1: And it can be also very hard to pause yourself when you've got an excitement over something, an energy towards Mm -hmm. it, an enthusiasm to really pause, take a half a step back and look around you to see what... Feelings other people might have and and actually gauge whether it's the right time to stop and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm right. kind of excited about starting my search, you know, and to right. reassure people that you still love them, that nothing will change no matter what happens. It can just be really right. difficult to to put the brakes on for a minute and gauge when the appropriate time to share your search with your adoptive family is unless it's been. An open topic from the very beginning. Michael has taken advantage of the opportunity to meet his relatives beyond the reunification with his immediate family. He delved into the family history in an amazing process of meeting the elders in the family. He's accumulated an array of information from aunts, uncles, and cousins who were tremendously supportive in understanding where Michael was coming from and his passion for learning his personal history. His journey took him to North and South Carolina, where he connected with parts of his roots. Michael talks about South Carolina first.
0: Well, in South Carolina, I was able to visit the grave site of the earliest um, ancestor that I know of um, who had the same biological last name. His name was Daniel Horst, and he was born in 1836 and died in 1915. I actually visited his grave site.
1: Wow, that's spectacular.
0: Damon, it it was emotionally jolting for me um, because I dare to say that I'm probably the first descendant, biological descendant, that was able to trace the family that far back um, in history and then identify an actual um, grave site um, that's still standing. That's still virtually well intact. And I'll never forget it. Uh, a cousin led me to the burial site. And I'll never forget when we turned down that dirt road and we took it all the way to the end. It was a dead end, but it opened up. And it was just, you could tell, you could feel the history down those parts of our orange birds. And we parked the car and we broke out and we kind of scoured, you know, all four corners of that cemetery. And so finally we made our way back to the, um, to the car and, um, there was this presence that I kept feeling. I said, I know he, I said, I know Daniel is here. And I just kept thinking about the, the, the painstaking time and energy spent and, scouring through genealogical records. And I said, you know, this is like the pinnacle of my research pertaining to this particular ancestor. I said, I've got to find his great friend.
1: Yeah, you're there. you got to find him.
0: I'm it. there. He's got to be here. He's got to be here. Damon, one of my cousins that came with us said, Michael, maybe he's behind you. I turned around and there he was.
1: Very serious? That's incredible. When I placed
0: my hand on that headstone. It was a beautiful obelisk, this beautiful um, inscription. I placed my hand on that headstone and something came over me. Damon, I began to weep so hard. And I, I tried very hard to control that energy because I felt embarrassed. A moment ago, we were just laughing and having a good time. And, yeah. and now I'm bawling my eyes out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember because was like, just go ahead and just let him know what you want him to know. And I, I just, the only thing that could come up was, thank you for surviving slavery. I also had researched him back during the pre-Civil War era, mm-hmm. that this ancestor had been enslaved. Mm-hmm. I have the document where he was sold at eight years old with the rest of his family for $1,321. And I just began to thank him for surviving slavery. Thank you for surviving Jim Crow.
1: In North Carolina, his research also took him back to the pre-Civil War era in America. He had tracked down more distant relatives in the 1850 census. It could be challenging to go back that far in history to determine whether a black American was a free slave in those days. Michael confirmed that his relatives were free but he discovered that they had an astonishingly similar experience to his own.
0: But I noticed something peculiar. I found them in the 1860 and the 1850 free schedule census, but they were living in a Williams household. And I said, wait a minute, this is unusual. So I had an opportunity to go down to the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh, and I presented this line to the clerk who then mentioned, you know, had I ever considered that maybe my answer it could have been orphaned. I said, no, I, I never, I thought it never came across my mind. He says, um, usually the courts would appoint them to my caretaker. In this case, the alleged Williams, that was the guy who was listed as the head of household, but my Evanses were listed as the children. So... I give it a shot, and lo and behold, we found a document that had my birth date, November 29th, okay, but the year was 1851. 127 years before I was born. I'm looking at a document that shows that my aunt, my biological great, great grandfather and his siblings are classified as orphans in North Carolina
1: placed in the care of William B. Williams. What? I was shocked. I I, I was stunned. You were placed into adoption, into foster care, ultimately into a Williams family. And you have discovered that the exact same thing happened with your own family 127 years (laughs) prior. Oh, man. Yeah, I just got to chill. That's unreal. That's unreal.
0: It was mind-blowing. But to know that to know that I went through a foster care, you know, situation in my own life, that completely floored
1: me. Michael learned that his biological father had been in and out of his biological mother's life. Through his genetic genealogy expertise, he was able to track down some cousins on his paternal side. He's spoken with cousins from that side of the family, but he's decided that he's not going to pursue a relationship with them at this time. Still He went and visited the neighborhood where his parents met in far Rockaway, Queens, and he feels connected to his origins after walking the streets of the neighborhood where his parents met. Along those lines of genetic expertise, he focused in on some of the health issues that might affect him directly.
0: I also noticed, too, just being Mm health-minded, that... um, The issue or the awareness, rather, not so much issue, but the awareness of being genetically uh, at risk for prostate cancer um, was very important for me to find that out so that I can become proactive Mm -hmm. in uh, disease prevention and just kind of make healthy changes in my diet. My disease risk was, I think, double the national average. I think it's so fascinating to kind of have that kind of to be empowered by the information yeah. to make necessary changes to kind of, you know, just be disease prevention minded. That's so fantastic.
1: Really Modern technology has enabled us to do DNA testing on a consumer level so that we can make yeah. these kinds of investments and um you know eliminations in our health and in our in our activities in order to pursue, you know, even greater health going forward than we probably normally would have. So that's really fascinating. Michael, your story has been really unbelievable, and I'm so thankful to you for sharing it with me, both for purposes of understanding the importance of one's genetic uh, genealogical makeup, uh, the historical research that you did, uh, but most of all, just the fulfillment that you've gotten from reuniting with your biological family. You sound like you've really reached a place of, of wholeness, and I'm, I'm really happy for you for that, and I appreciate you sharing your story for other adoptees' benefit. So thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. Of course, Michael. All the best to you. Thanks so much. Hey, it's me. How interesting was it to hear that Michael discovered his own adoption by accident and then realized that he had once been one of the foster children whom his family nurtured over the years? He sounded like he was really thankful for his place amongst his family in a very loving home. Like so many adoptees, Michael admitted that once he discovered he was adopted, he couldn't deny his curiosity. Of course, he admitted that if he had included his adopted family in his search, his mother might not have resisted him finding his family and reuniting with them over the holidays. As he was telling his story, I was imagining his family gathered around the table, thankful for all of the blessings their family had received including Michael's return. I think it's just awesome that he felt such a deep urge to know more about his own origins that he would take up genetic genealogy coaching. He used those skills to trace his own roots as far as he possibly could to the beginning of the Hearth family in South Carolina and the Williams household in North Carolina that seemed to be the blueprint for his own upbringing nearly a century later. I hope you'll find something in Michael's journey that inspires you validates your feelings about wanting to search or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn Who am I? Really? If you would like to share your story of locating and connecting to your biological family visit WhoAmIReallyPodcast.com slash share You can also find this show on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at WAI Really This show was edited by Sarah Fernandez